I'm a part scientist, part engineer at heart. Um, and what really motivates me is just finding really difficult problems to solve. And this one's a doozy, right? It's an absolute doozy. <laughs> There's a lot of moving parts and it's really hard. Um, but alongside that is if we solve it, this actually has the potential to have world-changing impact. Kiora, I'm Troy, here as CEO, and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today our conversation is with recent recipient of Heroes Innovation Award, Chris Bumby. As a Victoria University of Wellington senior scientist, he's leading exciting research to develop an alternative reductant in steelmaking. This would mean that water instead of carbon dioxide would be the byproduct of reduction and may eliminate the use of coal. He has already developed a small-scale zero-carbon method tailored specifically to New Zealand biome sands. The team has recently won a $6.5 million grant to start to scale up the process to tens of kilograms level, taking it one step further towards the aimed eventual commercial scale. Chris, can you start with the basics and tell us about the chemistry involved in steel making and why carbon is part of this process at all? Right, well, the steel and iron making process in particular um, goes back to two and a half thousand years, the start of the Iron Age. Um, and so iron ore that we find in rocks all around us, um, be it hematite from uh, Western Australia or New Zealand iron sands in New Zealand, uh, which is a titan of magnetite. In all cases, this is, a, this is a compound formed between iron and oxygen. It's an iron oxide. And so the process of turning this oxide rock into a metal is all about getting the oxygen out um, and so what we have to do is we have to react our iron ore with with something which will react with that oxygen and take it away to, to leave behind the iron metal and the the original processes that were developed in, in the iron age use use charcoal to do this use carbon so it reacts the carbon with the oxygen to form carbon dioxide and that takes the carbon dioxide away in the form of a gas and leaves the metal behind now, we obviously have to do this at high temperature. If we just put um, coal or charcoal and rocks together on the ground and leave it there, nothing happens. So we really do need to be doing this at quite high temperature, and we need to be doing it in an environment where we haven't got any additional oxygen, so we haven't got air coming back and just reoxidizing our iron metal. Um, and that's what happens inside a blast furnace. So a conventional blast furnace has layers of iron ore rock and layers of coal, which is a high intensity source of carbon, um, that we blow a little bit of air into. And that little bit of air reacts with the coal, it turns it into carbon monoxide. And then that carbon monoxide reacts with our iron ore, our iron oxide to form carbon dioxide and leave the metal behind. So that carbon dioxide that we make there is formed both as a, as a product of this chemical reaction, but it's also formed because we partially burnt this carbon to heat it up to make this carbon monoxide. And so it's, it's there as a combustion product and a chemical reaction product. And that's what makes the steelmaking process a bit different from other in, uh, industrial sources of carbon dioxide, such as the power industry, where we burn coal to, to generate electricity. And that's fine. Um, and you can think about burning other things. It's simply a source of heat in, in that process. 
But in the steel industry, it is also a chemical reactant. And if we're going to do something about those CO2 emissions, we have to think very carefully about the underlying chemistry of how we make iron metal. Is there any alternative reductant being used anywhere in the world? So commercially, no. Um, the coal, in, coal and the steelmaking industry has been around now for thousand years plus. Coal is a much higher intensity source of carbon than the original charcoal that was used two and a half thousand years ago. Um, but there are some discussion right at the moment about using, going back to using biomass and using forms of biomass um, in the steelmaking industry. Nothing commercial and very small scale labs, lab issues with that. There are some real challenges. Um, with biomass, uh, it's wet. It has a lot of water in it. Um, it can be easily more than half of it. Half of the total mass is water. It's very distributed. It's all over the place. So it's on the floor in the forests, um, and you've got to expend quite a lot of energy in terms of burning petrol in your trucks to pick all of this material up. It's got an alternative value use, right? So you're not going to be using your high value timber to do this because you can get more money by turning that into timber. Um, and it also has issues uh, in terms of the fact that if you heat up biomass, it generates tar and it generates um, uh, ash in terms of silica, all of which are problems. But nonetheless, it is a source of carbon and we can stick with our original chemistry if we do that, which is, which is advantageous. And we can generate um, carbon dioxide via that biomass process. However, the other approach, which is the approach we're looking at, and there is other work going on around the world to do this, is looking at using hydrogen. Now, by using hydrogen, we take carbon out of the equation completely. Um, and what we do is we change this reaction. So instead of having carbon plus iron oxide, we now have hydrogen plus iron oxide. And so our product, instead of being carbon dioxide from the carbon process, is now water. Hydrogen plus iron oxide gives me water and iron. And so that water comes off as, as water vapor, as steam, as high temperature steam, um, which we can then uh, vent quite easily um, with, with no with no environmental impact. Um, we're looking at that in New Zealand. There are projects in Europe. Um, some, of the, some of the large coal companies, uh, the steel companies there, ThyssenKrupp, SSAB, ArcelorMittal are all looking at small scale um, versions with their own processes and, and their own ores. Um, in the US, there's a bit of work funded out of the Department of Energy. And Korea and Japan also have um, activities in this area. Um, so there's a lot of global interest in this problem, and that's because it's a global problem. The steel industry um, contributes 7.5% of global CO2 emissions in total. Um, industrial emissions are about a quarter of all of the world's CO2 emissions, and steel is about a quarter of the industrial emissions. So um, it's a real issue. The world knows it's a real issue, uh, and everybody is, is thinking about how they can address it. What stage of development is the global research on carbon alternatives? So the Europeans are probably the furthest ahead at the moment in doing this. Uh, and there's two different approaches being taken there. Um, some, some areas are looking at being able to blow um, hydrogen directly into an existing blast furnace. Now that's not what a blast furnace was designed to do. Um, a blast furnace is designed to mix solid coal and solid um, solid iron ore together, and the reaction happens through, through the gradual progression of, of one with the other. But um, there have been some quite interesting results coming out suggesting that this is possible to do, at least in part. So um, th th a lot of these results are, are quite commercially secret, and it's not always clear exactly what's going on with, with these other companies. Um, but certainly in terms of co-blowing some hydrogen, um, 
with coal seem, seems to have uh, some, some opportunities and there's work going on in that in Europe. In other areas, there are um, groups looking at moving uh, direct reduced iron process, processes. So this moves us away from the blast furnace entirely. And direct reduced iron is what we do in New Zealand. Um, so in a direct reduced iron process, instead of re reacting the iron ore um, all the way up to the melting temperature of iron so that we get liquid iron coming out of the bottom of our blast furnace, what we do is we do the whole reaction in the solid state. So we take our solid iron ore and we turn it into a solid sponge metal. And then we take that out and take it to a separate melter where we melt it and separate it and take it into steel. Now, um, the direct reduced iron industry is, compared to the blast furnace industry, relatively young. It's been around since the uh, early 70s. And, and the Glenbrook Steel Plant in New Zealand was one of the very first global uh, commercial DRI plants that, that was ever installed. Um, Nowadays, uh, the dominant uh, technology for doing this is, is a technology known as Midrex, which is a vertical shaft furnace technology. Um, and they've been very uh, active in the area initially of natural gas and syngas, um, hydrogen reduction of uh, iron ore, and, and are now starting to look at hydrogen reduction as well. So they have a, they have a number of projects going on, and uh, there's a project in Sweden looking at vertical shaft reactor um, work uh, with iron ore there. Then, um, Again, that's relatively early stage, although there's a lot of impetus and a lot of European money behind pushing forward processes in those areas which are appropriate for the capital they've already got invested and for the sorts of iron ore that they are actually um, using. And that's something that's very important to remember is that iron ore is not a single material. Every single rock around the world is different. And it all comes with minor contaminants that change its behavior. And whilst the dominant materials in all of these rocks in order to make iron is iron, because otherwise we haven't got a product to start with, these contaminants are what change its behavior. And they change how it behaves in your manufacturing process. And they can radically change how you are able to handle it in, in, a, in a factory setting. Um, so in New Zealand, we have a very interesting iron ore. Um, we use uh, beach sands. We, we use the Titan and Magatite black sands that are found all along the, the west coast of, of, of New Zealand, of the North Island of New Zealand. And this is a really fascinating resource. I mean, it's volcanic in origin. Um, it's generally thought to have come from the two or three volcanoes down, at, down in, in the centre of the North Island, and then has uh, been spread by the action of wind and uh, uh, rain, rivers and sea across the, across the coast, where the action of the sea has eroded and grounded up into these small particles and in, by grinding it up into small particles what happens is that all the bits of silicates and sands and stuff that isn't heavy iron oxide get chipped off and they get washed away so what you end up with is all the heavy stuff left in big part of the beach and in the dunes and the heavy stuff is where the iron is so nature over mil millions of years has actually done a really good job for us here in purifying our iron up ore up to a really high level without us having to invest any time or effort. This is quite important because globally, about 5% of global industrial electricity consumption is consumed in grinding up rocks. This is what is necessary to do with most mines around the world in order to get to a high purity product is that to some degree or other, you'd start with some really big lumps of rock and you grind them up enough that you knock off all the bits that you don't want and wash them away one way or the other. And then what you're left with is your product. 
But in New Zealand, we don't have that problem because we start with the sand. And so all we have to do is we run it past a magnet and the magnet pulls out the stuff we want and the stuff we don't want goes out the flume at the end. And we're there ready with, with, our, with our really quite low cost, efficiently produced um, precursor that we can then take straight to iron. But there's a catch. And the catch is that New Zealand iron sand doesn't just contain iron. It contains a significant amount of titanium dioxide, um, about 7.5%. And it's bound in the lattice in, in, this, in, in this compound known as titan magnetite. So the titanium and the iron are sitting in the same crystal lattice. You, it doesn't matter how much you grind it up. You can't take them apart. They're atomically bonded together. Um, and that means that you have to take that titanium into your reactor and do the chemistry in the presence of that titanium. Now, the titanium does some weird stuff. It slightly stabilizes the iron oxide, so it's slightly harder to reduce, but that's not a big deal. We can, we can handle that. It's, it's, not, it's not significant. The bigger problem is that at the end, it doesn't reduce. So at the end of the reaction, um, it's still there. And when you then take it through to the next stage of the iron steel making process, where we want to melt the product, it goes to the slag phase. So if you try and do this in a conventional blast furnace, where you've got a big vertical blast furnace, and the idea is that all of the liquid slag and liquid metal runs the bottom, and the metal goes out the bottom, and the slag goes out the other side, and everything, it runs balanced. It doesn't work. This titanium bonds with the carbon and uh, the oxygen in the system, and it forms these really high melting point compounds just don't melt at sensible temperatures. So instead of getting a slag coming out of your um, blast furnace, what you tend to do, what, what you risk doing is turning your entire $100 million reactor into one large terracotta ornament, which is not what we're after. So people figured this out a long time ago. There'd been, there were attempts to make um, iron out of uh, New Zealand iron sand using blast furnace technologies back in the very early 1900s, and they were a total failure. Um, and it, it took until the 1950s and 60s and a significant actually government funded um, program, a strategic government funded program that said, look, we, we think there is significant economic benefit in this, but, and New Zealand needs its own steel industry if it is going to stand on its own two feet on the world stage and, and have, a, have a genuine manufacturing industry. And so over a period of about 15 to 20 years, um, the DSIR, Department of Scientific Industrial Research, uh, that was the main um, government research agency uh, in those days, um, developed from, from scratch uh, an iron-making uh, research program. They brought in expertise from all around the world. They sent people off all over the world to learn, ha learn how to do it. They talked with companies who were just starting to develop DRI processes um, overseas. And in the end, they worked with um, Mobile to bring in uh, a process which they then had to adjust quite significantly to turn it into what is now the New Zealand steel process um, at Glenbrook. And that handles this titanium problem by doing it in two stages. So first of all, we do our solid state reduction to make our direct reduced iron, our DRI. And only once we've done that, we then take it to a separate melter. And this melter is designed to make it easy to get the slag off the top. Um, and we melt it there and we get all of that titanium thick sludgy slag out of the way early in that melter and then we go on and make the steel after that and that process has been running for 30 plus years now um 40 plus years now with uh with no <laughs> with no problems but it is a 40 plus year well 40 50 year old it, um process um and just like any other process in in the global steel industry it, it does emit significant amounts of co2 
One of the specific challenges, um, the specific technical cha challenges in finding an alternative reductant in the context of New Zealand's unique steel production process? So, there's quite a lot <laughs> going on there. So we talked briefly about both the, the New Zealand iron sand um, and, and these options in terms of biomass and hydrogen. And so we, we're definitely of the view that hydrogen is, is, is the way forward in terms of having a high intensity product that we can um, look at a supply chain that will prov provide that as, a, as a, an input to a factory um, and that we can specify clearly and that we um, can work with then in terms of reaction. We've got the iron sand, so we've got all this titanium problem. We've got the fact that it's a fine sand so that's great in terms of getting it into high purity but it does cause some problems when you then try and um, do a standard reaction with it if we just tip fine sand of any type into the top of a blast furnace we get the same problem i was talking about before and that's because all these fine sand particles have got lots and lots of surface area and when you heat them up they all stick together and so once they've all stuck together they just jam a big solid lump through the middle of your reactor and you can't move anything anymore so one of the really important things about any sort of process and particularly direct reduced iron processes where you've got lots of solid uh, material moving through moving through your reactor is you have to be able to keep conveying it through if it just gets stuck and someone has to turn the whole thing off cool it down get in there unblock it that's just heaps of downtime and is never going to be economic so dealing with fines is, is an issue um, Dealing with the titanium generally is an issue. Now, at the moment, um, of course, we've got pro New Zealand Steel have got well-developed processes for dealing with the titanium slags that they produce at Glenbrook. But those slags are produced from a carbon-based process. So there's carbon in the slag, um, and it changes a number of the other uh, balances of, of uh, contaminants, uh, minority contaminants that are in the slag as well. Um, so we know we're going to change the chemistry of the slag when we, when we add hydrogen but we don't really know what we're going to change it to, except that we are going to have to do something to um, address it because we know that in its basic state, it is going to be very, very viscous and very high melting point. And we've shown that in our lab already. Um, so that's on, the, that's on the iron sand side. On the hydrogen side, we also then buy all of the problems that the people around the rest of the world are looking at. So hydrogen, without stating the obvious, is a gas, not a solid. So all of these existing um, processes built around uh, coal are designed to use coal as a solid input and they work on the basis that we get um, quite a lot of mixing between the two products and we get both solid to solid, solid to gas, solid to gas to solid um, type reactions going on. Uh, starting off with the gas to a certain extent simplifies some of these things um, in that we are always going to have a gas to solid reaction but we have to think quite carefully about how we introduce it into our reactor because we now need to be able to inject it down nozzles we have to think quite carefully about how we, how we maintain good contact between our gas and our solid because the gas wants to just keep going it just wants to flow straight back out again um, and we need to keep it there long enough to react um, and we need to think uh, quite carefully about um, what happens to our product, right? So um, we started with, and in particular, our exhaust. So we started by putting in hydrogen, and what we get out is steam. Now, it's steam at above 1,000 degrees centigrade, um, which is quite corrosive um, and highly oxidizing. And there's quite a lot of standard refractory ceramics and the like that just do not like steam at those sort of temperatures. Um, so that restricts our materials choice about what we can actually make our reactor out of. The other challenge with hydrogen is, again, fairly obvious. If we don't put any carbon in at the start, 
we don't end, in any, end up with any carbon dissolved in our iron at the end, which means that instead of producing a standard pig iron, so something with four plus percent of carbon in it, which has a reasonable melting temperature, um, and which we've got well-developed processes in industry for handling, we're now producing a material that's got no carbon at all in it. Now, that means it might be a little bit susceptible to oxidation, although that's not my biggest concern. We can handle that reasonably straightforwardly in terms of the way we handle environments. Um, the bigger issue is that a lot of standard steel processes use that dissolved carbon downstream um, as a source of heat when they then blow oxygen back into their steel making process to reheat it. So we, we now have a heat problem and that heat problem exists at every stage of the process, right? Because um, we need to get up to a thousand degrees centigrade in a standard process, be it a coal fired blast furnace or maybe something like the natural gas fired Midrex DRI reactors, they do it by combustion. They burn stuff. Burning stuff is a really good way to get hot. Um, if we, if we are, not, uh, are setting out to say we are going to emit no CO2 emissions from our um, process whatsoever, then, then we've taken burning stuff off the table. And that means we need to heat the system electrically. Now, that poses both engineering and economic challenges. It poses engineering challenges because when you combust something or in a blast furnace, when you actually partially oxidize it inside the furnace, you deliver the heat right where you want it. It's right inside the furnace and away you go. Um, and you, your heat leakage then is, is just a radiant out from that center. If we want to heat something electrically, then the standard way to do that is to wrap a big electric heater around your chamber. But now we've got our heating on the outside and our product on the inside. So we need to think quite carefully about how we keep as much heating efficiency as possible in that system so, so, so that we stay hot. Um, and there are various ways of doing that. The other issue is the obvious one that electricity is expensive. Um, it's a lot more expensive than burning stuff. Uh, and that puts a huge onus on being efficient, on, be, on recycling as much heat as you can through the system, um, and in delivering with the heat where you want it and only where you want it. Uh, so that gives you quite a significant set of challenges that you are then trying to design a process around to meet. And where are you at in terms of your research in being able to address these challenges? So what we've been doing over the last few years is starting right from the bottom. Um, and the reason for that is that about four years ago now, um, we were having a discussion actually in our lab about various bits and pieces and realized that um, some of the last expertise that was existing in the public research system, so not at New Zealand Steel, but in the public research system in, in what used to be DSIR and, and is now um, part of the Callahan Innovation Center out at, out at Graceville. The last people who had, had ever been involved in Iron Sands research were about to retire. And we were a bit concerned that this meant we were about to lose a lot of national knowledge in what is a fundamentally a, a strategic resource for New Zealand. Um, so, Alongside that, there were various other questions, and we started a small project, just, just doing a little bit of scoping work to make sure that we, we were able to reclaim some of that information and to look initially at, at, at methane, natural gas-fired um, reduction of, of New Zealand iron sand, which, which at the time was, was um, very much on the up as a result of the fracking revolution and, and the reduction in, in the cost of, um, of natural gas around the world. Um, so over those sort of few years, we developed a bit of expertise, first in doing some simple stuff like making pellets and doing some small, small scale chemistry. And we quickly caught up with where things kind of left off in the 
late 70s, early 80s, when the government funding for, for, for the previous Ironsand work more or less finished, um, and started to develop some processes. And we, we started making a list of all of these things that we're talking about here. And a lot of the problems I've just talked about in terms of gas to solid are, are the same for natural gas as they are for hydrogen. Um, and in doing that, we, we, um, we realized that there was an opportunity to look at a type of uh, process known as a fluidized bed process. And so this is a process where in, we use, instead of using big heavy lumps of ore, which feed down through a vertical shaft furnace, um, or, uh, as is the case in the Midrex and the blast furnace and most classical DRI processes. Um, we could take the fact that we have an iron sand, which is, which, is a, which is a sand, a powder, and we could use powder processing technologies to do this. And so one of these is this fluidized bed approach. And so what we do is we blow a gas in at the bottom of our um, system and we blow it through a, what, a, what we call a, a diffuser or, or a, a porous plug. So, and what that does is it lets the gas through, but it acts like a filter and stops any um, solids falling back the other way. And by doing that, we can blow all of this sand up and we can fluidize it. We, we blow it up and down. And if we get the flow rate right, we don't blow it too hard. If you blow it too hard, it all goes out the exhaust and that, that's not good. Um, and if you don't blow it hard enough, it all sits together and it all centers together like we were talking about before. But if we blow it the right amount, we can fluff it all up and we can bounce it up and down in, in, in our fluidized bed reactor. Um, and we can look, then look at the chemistry. And so there's some really good advantages to doing that, which is that by doing that, we divide all of our iron sand up into these small particles. And so that gives us lots of surface area um, uh, for reactions to occur at, which means that reactions happen really quickly. And we started com com um, commissioning our, our furnace with hydrogen for no real better reason than we happen to have a bottle of hydrogen uh, outside, the, outside the lab. And uh, methane's not that hard to get, but we just didn't have one plugged in at the time. Um, so we started with hydrogen and we very quickly discovered that um, this worked really well and went really fast. And in particular, it didn't incur a whole bunch of problems that we were expecting to incur. So people have tried fluidized bed re uh, reduction of iron ore in the past. Um, and it, the general conventional view is that if you do this, what will happen is that very quickly, your, it doesn't matter how much you're bouncing up and down your fluidized re bed reactor, your particles will start sticking together, they'll fall a big sintered lump, they will stick and plug your reactor, and that's the end of that. So we had developed, one of the PhD students and I had developed quite a big long list of all these things we were going to do to stop this sticking. Um, and we, and it was a, page or so of, of things and it was going to be a three-year research project and he was going to get a PhD in proving how he wasn't going to get these things sticking. So the first time we fired it up, we turned it on, ran it for 25 minutes, nothing stuck. Took it out, it's pure iron. Why has this happened? So it took us quite some time to figure this out, but it turns out that this titanium problem that we have in uh, New Zealand iron sand, which is usually considered to be a big problem for the iron making industry when you are using this technique this fluidized bed processing technique is an absolute godsend because what the titanium does is that as soon as you start reducing the material it migrates to the outside of the particle and what it does is it gives you this little shell around every single iron sand particle. So our whole, instead of having a whole bunch of stuff growing up and down with bits of iron metal starting to form on the outside and sticking to each other up high temperatures and whatever else, instead, each little particle acts like its own contained little reactor with this little titanium dioxide shell around the outside that keeps the iron in and which is permeable to the hydrogen gas so the gas can go in. It's very thin. It's only about one or two microns thick, this shell. Um, and the reaction then happens inside the shell in, in the, um, 
in the center of the iron uh, the iron sand particle and iron is produced inside the iron sand particle with water diffusing back out again and all the time it's wrapped up in this protective um, titanium dioxide shell that stops them sticking together that's great because it means it all flows perfectly out of the reactor at the end we just blow it around just like you would for um, hand, any other sort of pneumatic conveying system whether you're conveying grain or um, paper chips or, or whatever it is that pneumatic conveyance is, is, is a well-known process industrially and as is a bit hotter than some of these other processes but the principles are the same we turn on a valve and we blow it out um, and that makes it really easy to convey material through which as we talked about before is, is really important to having a, a, um, an industrial process and what we've also found is that because we've got this fluidized bed process working we're actually able to go much much faster than conventional processes so the new zealand steel process relies on a reduction time of a bit more than 10 hours i think is the residence time to, to take the iron ore through to through to um th through to iron we in our lab have been doing this in about 15 minutes and i think we can go quite a bit faster than that purely and simply because um we've got this solid to liquid mixing uh solid to gas mixing going on in in the um fluidized bed uh which means that we've got these very high surface areas and these very short diffusion lengths of the which are the order of size of the sand particles so that's a few hundred microns at at most what stage of scale up are you at what needs to be done before this would be a commercially applicable uh process well, I think we have to be very clear here. This is early stage work. Um, we are very much still in the laboratory at the moment. Um, and the development of any industrial process takes time. You have to go through multiple scale up processes and we have to be, um, we can't skip steps. Skipping steps is a terrible idea because you just make something that doesn't work and that's the end of it. Um, so we are on a 15 year probably trajectory here from where we currently are um, at the moment we're operating at the hundreds of gram stage we're right at the moment in the process of building um, the next stage reactor which will be a kilograms of an hour stage um, uh, continuous reactor and our target over the next um, few years is to get to 10 kilograms an hour in a in a, in a fully continuous system um, which includes some extra balance of plant around um, hydrogen recycling and heat recycling uh, that's important to actually be able to demonstrate all of the key component technologies that need that are going to be required before we start actually thinking about things at scale but that's just phase one and that's going to take us most of the next five years next four and a half years phase two would then be to look at a pilot plant um, so that's in the future we need to demonstrate that we can actually work at 10 kilograms an hour first but if we can do that then a pilot a phase two pilot plant is going to be looking at something that's probably about 10 times bigger than that so getting to a ton an hour now that's sub-commercial um, but it allows us to move to a system where we actually have to be able to demonstrate conveyance heat transfer um, uh, efficiency reliability safety um, all at a sensible scale which, which are we can get we can source industrial components which are just smaller versions of, of, of a final version and then phase three would be to looking to go another scale of 10 above that which is 10 tons an hour now that's still fairly sub-commercial for the steel industry as it exists at the moment uh, and we're not sure whether or not that's also going to be true for this process there are some advantages to being able to work with uh, hydrogen gas you effectively swap some of your 
capital costs for input costs. Um, so a big issue with hydrogen generally is at the moment it's really expensive. Um, but we're hoping that the hydrogen industry around us is going to develop along the trajectory that we're being told. Um, and we're fairly agnostic about where it comes from. Actually, from our perspective, we just need hydrogen at the gate. Um, whether, it's the, whether this is made via electrolyzers and um, wind turbines or geothermal or whether it's made by, by um, some other source, some other, some other processes is, is, is neither here nor there for us. Um, so we're hopeful that because of some of the design decisions and the investigation we're doing right now, we are going to be able to target a process which will be commercial at a smaller scale than the current New Zealand steel plant. And how big is the team and who are your collaborators? So our team's not huge. Um, at the moment, we're funded through uh, a grant we've just received, uh, we're fortunate to receive in October 2019 from um, the government, from the MB Endeavour Scheme. So this is the national science investment scheme uh, and the headline numbers there are big right the headline numbers there are six and a half million dollars over over five years but dividing through by five immediately takes us to a smaller number uh, and by the time we've we've recognized that we're going to spend quite a lot of money on equipment and whatever else to build this stuff uh, and um and people we're, we're 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 still very much at early stage research but our team in total is about 10 people at the moment and we've got some vacancies because that is not enough people um so if there are people out there who'll be interested in doing a PhD in hydrogen steel making and fluidized beds and learning about this, and you've got you've already got a good undergraduate degree um, in material science or chemistry or engineering, um, then please do get in contact. And we also have a, a, a vacancy for a PhD qualified research engineer in this space. Um, the team, in, the team as, as it is at the moment is, is a big collaboration. Uh, so as well as um, my team at the Robinson Institute at Victoria University of Wellington, um, we've also been working closely for some time now with the University of Wollongong and Professor Brian Monaghan and uh, Dr. Ray Longbottom over there who, who, who are experts in this field. And Ray in particular has done a lot of work in New Zealand iron sand uh, dating back for some time. Um, our reactor itself is based at Callahan Innovations Gracefield site. That's important. We're hosing quite a lot of hydrogen through this system. We need some fairly specialist safety um, facilities in order to run this system. Um, and so Callahan are in one of the few places in the country that we can do that. Um, and they, they have the, the infrastructure and the ability to, to support that. So uh, Diego Del Puerto and Martin Ryan at uh, Callahan are, are key, key components of our team and have been involved from the very start. Uh, we've also got um, collaborators at the University of Canterbury um, and at uh, Virum, who, who used to be known as CRL, who have a long background in um, gasification and high temperature reactor technology and are helping us out with quite a few of, of the high temperature research engineering space. Um, so we're drawing on as much of a national capability as we, we can find uh, because we think that this is a, a national scale problem and the only way we're going to address it is with a national scale effort. Is there any way that the research could be fast-tracked? Is it limited because of the team size or the funding or is it just that experiments have to run for that period of time? Oh we're definitely resource constrained yes we are definitely resource constrained. Um, if we have more money and more people and it's important that to note that finding the right people can sometimes be 
as much of a challenge, but we can't even go and look for them if we haven't got more money. Um, <laughs> uh, if we had more people and more money, we, we certainly could go faster. And, and at the moment, uh, it is a frustration of mine that we are, we are resource constrained. I would like to be going two to three times as fast as we could. Um, and that means that we need real proper money. Um, the money we've got is great, and we're absolutely saying thank you very much to, to, to the support we've got from the Endeavor Fund. But if we are serious about taking this problem um, on and addressing what, what represents um, about a significant portion of New Zealand's um, emissions. So if you look at net emissions, uh, steel production is actually about 14% of New Zealand's emissions. Now, that's a slightly false number because um, the net emissions include a, a big subtraction of, from trees. If you take that out and you just look at actual emissions, it's not, uh, it's not quite as large, but it's still of the order um, uh, of the global level. So we're still talking something around 6 to 7% of total emissions for, for, from, from the, the steel industry um, and the metal making industry. So this is a big national issue. If we get it right, it's also a huge opportunity. And, and that's the, the framing that I, that I prefer to think about this out is we shouldn't feel threatened about the fact that um, the world is looking at climate change issues and wants to see a change. That's the wrong way to think about this. What this actually is, is this is a brilliant opportunity to be rewarded for doing clever, intelligent, forward thinking science and technology that will move us into a high value space where we can talk about selling green steel there is a market for green steel there's a huge global market for green steel um, particularly in the uh, in the construction industry where um, sustainable housing um, passive housing low energy housing is, is a huge um, hugely important part of the market um, and being able to produce green steel from renewable produced hydrogen from clean green new zealand is a marketer's dream okay if you put all of those bits together i have absolutely no doubt that you can sell that product at a significant premium in the, in the global market so the challenge for us as, as engineers and scientists is to actually be able to realize that product to, to sell it um, and that's where i just want to go as fast as we can and is there a global cooperation it what's happening um, what's happening between academics and industry in sharing IP? So a little bit of that is starting. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I think if you'd asked me that question even two years ago, I'd have said, no, everybody's doing their own little thing and we're, everybody's trying to hold on to their own IP and there's not a lot of talking. But um, over the last couple of years in particular, I think everybody's started to realise, oh, other people around the world have also thought this is a good idea. And that's, that's often the way with good ideas is that more than one person at a time has them. Um, so uh, I've recently been in discussions with the World Steel Council. There's been uh, a significant conference going on over in, the US, uh, in Australia very recently with a, a number of people going on. The Australians are also looking quite hard at these areas. There's still a lot of internal um, commercial um, confidentiality about the details of what people are doing but there is a general um, convergence on key issues and the academic literature is starting to show um, more and more evidence of, of, of this sort of, uh, of, of hydrogen steel making technologies being reported um, there's been some interesting review papers out recently we published some stuff that um, has attracted quite a lot of attention as well so there is 
always there is there is definitely some coming together of of those uh, of academia and industry in that regard i would say from our from our perspective um we are a research institute our job is to do research and we are never going to manufacture steel so we are very very interested in talking to potential commercial partners um new zealand steel have been very helpful already and we're, we're keen to continue that conversation and that relationship um but ultimately we recognize right at the moment we are a high commercial risk uh, and we've got a research program in front of us that is going to de-risk that as fast as possible so that we can integrate with, with commercial partners and, and start to talk about how we accelerate our movement through these, these secondary pilot stage processes. And what is it, Chris, that has actually um, captured your imagination on this project? What is it that's motivating you to do this research? <sighs> I'm a part scientist, part engineer at heart. Um, and what really motivates me is just finding really difficult problems to solve. And this one's a doozy, right? It's an absolute doozy. <laughs> There's a lot of moving parts and it's really hard. Um, but alongside that is if we solve it, this actually has the potential to have world-changing impact. Certainly New Zealand changing impact, but, but world changing impact as well. Um, the steel industry is massively important to the global economy. We are not about to get rid of our steel industry. Um, we have to think about ways to deal with the CO2 emissions that come out of this industry, because without that, we, we just are really going to struggle to meet some of these targets that are being put in front of the rest of the economy. And to be honest, it's non-negotiable. If, if we've got consumers out there who are being told that um, they have to swap out their cars for electric vehicles, we've got people out there who are putting significant carbon charges on, on various other items, we have to solve this. Um, and being at the center of that and being involved in, in that sort of globally changing industry is just exciting. So um, I really enjoy going to work at the moment. It's just great fun. Quite apart from the fact that designing new types of high temperature hydrogen furnaces that run over a thousand C with buckets of hydrogen going through and making hot, hot iron out of that. That's just cool. So um, no, I'm having a good time. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Chris today. If you'd like to connect more with him, you'll find his details in the show notes. In our feedback from the 2020 Future Forum, several members requested more information on Chris's work. A focus on sustainability generally and carbon performance specifically is certainly starting to gather momentum within the industry. Hi there, it's Troy again. If you'd liked what you heard today, then you may be interested to find out more about the draft Alteroa Steel Industry Transformation Agenda and Plan that we recently released. It aims to provide an industry blueprint for a sustainable future based on Treasury's Living Standards Framework. To find out more, get in contact with me. My details are in the show notes.